The following audio is brought to you by Emmanuel Baptist Church in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. More information about our church can be found at emmanueltuscaloosa.org. The text for the sermon is from Hebrews chapter 1. If you'd like to turn to Hebrews 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to, the, to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says he makes his angels winds, and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain they will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful to be in your word this morning. We pray with text as deep as the one we are seeking to understand. We need your help. Throughout this study, we pray that you would give us eyes to see. We pray that you would give us hearts that are ready to understand and apply your word. I pray that over the next however long it takes us to get through the book of Hebrews, that you would transform our hearts. Where our hearts have been hardened by sin, where they have been calloused, that you would break through that exterior and you would give us Hearts that seek after you. Hearts that see Christ as the only satisfaction this world has to offer. Would you give us lasting fulfillment in Him and Him alone? Would you give us a hearty desire to pursue an understanding of you through your word as you have revealed it? We pray that you would do that for each of us in the study of your word. 
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Jesus' Calling is a 365-day devotional. It was written by the late Sarah Young, and it was published by Thomas Nelson. It is, you will find it, you probably will see it or have seen it in Christian bookstores the world over, purchased by Christians the world over. On July 27th, 2023, Thomas Nelson announced that the brand Jesus Calling, which branched out into God Calling and a lot of people calling, um, celebrated 45 million units sold is an astounding number. That's over 19 years of sales. In the book and in its prefaces and in its, the back of the binding and all the publications about the book and throughout the book and that kind of thing, Sarah Young essentially claims to speak for God. The publisher, Thomas Nelson, describes the book this way. After many years of writing her own words in her prayer journal, missionary Sarah Young decided to be more attentive to the Savior's voice and begin listening for what He was saying. So with pen in hand, she embarked on a journey that forever changed her and many others around the world. In these powerful pages are the words and scriptures Jesus lovingly laid on her heart words and scriptures. Words of reassurance, comfort, and hope. Words that have made her increasingly aware of His presence and allowed her to enjoy His peace. There's troubling things, obviously, that are stated in that, to say the least. That's by a publisher of supposedly Christian literature. Words and scriptures Jesus laid on her heart. These are the words Jesus spoke to her, she says. She teaches that God's revelation of Jesus through the Bible is insufficient. In the original opening of the book, which has since been changed because everybody reacted so negatively towards it, to be honest with you, Sarah Young said this, I began to wonder... If I could receive messages during my times of communing with God. I had been writing in prayer journals for years, but that was one-way communication. I did all the talking. I knew that God communicated with me through the Bible, but I yearned for more. Increasingly, I wanted to hear what God had to say to me personally on a given day. That's even more troubling. She then began to endorse, through the book, the pagan practice of what's called automatic writing. Automatic writing is a practice that's done by psychics and mediums the world over, where the listener, in the words of Sarah Young, sits with pen in hand, writing down whatever I believe God is saying. She says this, This practice of listening 
to God has increased my intimacy with Him more than any other spiritual discipline. So I want to share some of the messages I have received. In many parts of the world, Christians seem to be searching for a deeper experience of Jesus. Presence and peace. The messages that follow address that felt need. All of that is pagan. It's not Christian. Um, my intention here is not to trash Sarah believe it or not. Although, there is a however here. I don't think you should ever buy anything she ever wrote. And if you have a book that is written by her, then perhaps you might use it to fix a wobbly table, prop open a door, sop up a spill, or better yet, it makes great kindling if you're roasting s'mores. Did the pastor just recommend book burning? <laughs> well, a few hundred years ago, they were burning heretics. So I consider mine like a middle position, a gracious position, to take the book instead. My intention in bringing this up is to say that Sarah Young's books come from a place that I think we can probably all recognize. I think in the things that you hear her say, maybe you can see in yourself an understanding of where she was coming from. That's being generous, being charitable. I get it. It's a place that, that really, if we're being really honest, wants God occasionally to just audibly speak to us. Or perhaps reveal Himself to us personally in one way or another. It strikes us when we're at that really important juncture in life. When we have maybe really important decisions to make. Whether to take a job or not take a job. Whether to move or not move. Things like that. God, why don't you just tell me? I just... I just want to know. Take the job. Okay, I got it. It's clear. It's the same place that says, God, I, I just want a sign. Maybe give me something. And then we wait to read the tea leaves while I walked outside and the clouds parted. And that told me all I needed. It's that same place that I think we've all gotten to at one time or another, and if you haven't gotten there, you probably will. If you've ever had feelings like these, you're not alone. In fact, I think the original recipients of Hebrews might have been in something of a similar position. Or, or might have at least known what that felt like, what that feels like. To really want to hear from God. Now, as we come to this letter, let me just say very clearly 
the things that we don't know. Okay, we don't know who wrote this letter. Now, church history tells us that Paul, the Apostle Paul, probably endorsed it. That he at least had eyes on it at some point before it went out. That's at least if you believe anything that church history has to tell you, which I do. We also don't know to whom it was written. Now, it's pretty clear from the title, which comes from the contents of this letter, that it was probably a group of people who were Christian converts from Judaism. They came straight from Judaism to Christianity. But we don't know who wrote it or precisely the audience to whom it was written. Now, with all that we don't know, there are some things that we can piece together about this letter, some things that we do know. First, we do know they have endured persecution for their faith in Jesus. That's what the audience has been through recently. They have endured persecution. Hebrews 10, 32-34 says this, But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. So they've been through that, right? You can probably understand how they might say, Lord, we want something from you. <laughs> Please tell us what to do now. We also know that they are currently helping fellow believers. They are currently doing things that you would think a church should be doing in helping fellow believers. Hebrews 6.10 tells us this, For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for His name in serving the saints, as you still do. So we, we know they endured persecution for their faith in Jesus. We know they are currently helping fellow believers. We also know that they were beginning to lose their conviction and perhaps seeking maybe some of them to return to Judaism. Think about it, if you endure that kind of persecution, at what point are you going, hey, I didn't deal with this back then. I could just turn around, maybe, and go back. Hebrews 5, 11-10 says, You have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. So there's some conviction that they're beginning to lose, perhaps even seeking a return to Judaism. Finally, some have even stopped gathering with the church body altogether. If that is where persecution happens, as a result of me going and associating with these people, then why don't I just get a boat and go out on a lake on Sunday? Or a jet ski. I don't know if they had jet skis back then. Hebrews 10, 23-25 says, Let's 
Hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for He who promised is faithful. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. So perhaps the audience that's receiving this letter for the first time might also be wishing for maybe a pause, a timeout, just a, a, a stoppage of play for a moment to hear what God has to say. Maybe a moment where He might just kind of unzip the sky, step into their world, maybe give them a peek behind the curtain and just show them that one time, the suffering that you're going through, look how worth it it is. Do, do you see what's waiting on this side of the curtain for you? Look at those people who have been put to death because they followed Christ. Look at where they are now. Can you see them back here? Maybe just one moment where God might just say, let's stop everything. Let's just, let's just reset this whole thing for just a second. I want you to look at something. I want you to see this. Where maybe they might go, okay, you know, I can do this. If that's what happens after this is over, kill me now. I'm fine with it. It's great. But here they are, maybe in a position similar to us, where we've gotten to places where we would just maybe want to hear from God. Lord, am I, am I doing this right? What decision should I make? Would you just please tell me? The author of Hebrews is going to set out to solve this dilemma that maybe we all face. For his audience, with this letter, he wants them to see the richness that they actually have in Christ. He's going to remind them in this letter that acts more like a sermon, honestly, than anything else. Yes, sermons used to be much longer. Just look at it. He's going to remind them what they have in Christ and how it's better than anything else they could possibly ever want. That, that moment where you might have the sky unzipped and you can see behind, behind the curtain. Even that, what you think it might give to you, cannot be better than what you have in Christ Himself in the way God has revealed Him to you. In the end, what is it? What is it that keeps our souls from wanting more than what God has actually given to us? What is it that keeps us from wanting more than what God has given to us? And the answer is, it's Christ. Christ is the anchor of our souls. When we come to see Him as the supreme gift, as the ultimate treasure that God could possibly ever give, then He becomes to us and to our souls an anchor that tethers us down to reality and keeps us from wandering to this doctrine or that doctrine? What is it that keeps us 
in a place of steadfastness, when the world is telling you, hey, if you continue to believe in this nonsense, then you're going to be put to public scorn. What is it that keeps us tethered to the reality of God? It is the treasure that we have in Christ. When we come to see Him as supremely valuable, it keeps us from running to anything else. But the opening of the book, and all we're going to look at this morning is the first one and a half verses. This opening is reassuring you, Christian, that God has not only spoken to you, but He has done so in the best, most comforting way possible. A way that is the envy of every religion. We're going to walk through this book, Sunday by Sunday, at a relatively slow pace. You thought Matthew took a long time. Hebrews is going to take us longer, I think. Some of you have told me that you've begun reading Hebrews chapter 1. You've gone through it several times to kind of see. That's a good practice. Keep reading. We're going to be in Hebrews 1 for a long time, so just, just keep going, right? <laughs> Sometimes we're going to go phrase by phrase. Other times we might go a little faster, but it's going to be a relatively slow pace. When you do that kind of pace, when you go through the text that many times, you tend to notice things that you didn't see before. So we're going to look at the passage that we're looking at this morning, just the first one and a half verses. It says this, starting verse 1, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. Now, the, the author is really laying out two ways that God has spoken throughout human history. And the first is through the prophets, and the second is through the Son. And, and, and the main point, as the title of this sermon suggests, is that God has indeed spoken. Throughout time, God has spoken to humans. And that's important because He could have remained silent. He could have not said anything, not one word to us at all. And if He had remained silent, all of humanity would have been trapped in darkness. You and I certainly wouldn't be in the same room together. We wouldn't be doing the same things. We cer I certainly wouldn't be preaching. We would be all probably out on a lake somewhere. Well, probably not in January, but you get the idea. He could have remained silent. And if He would have, we would all be destined for hell. He had every right to do that and could have done it. But the only reason you, are, you and I are here in this room, worshiping God together, is because He spoke. He revealed Himself. He demonstrated to humanity who He was. And the first thing that the author tells us is that He spoke to our fathers at many times and in many ways. And what He means by that is that God has progressively revealed Himself throughout time. Early on, He did so through mighty works. If you go back in the beginnings of the Old Testament, you find there that He parted the Red Sea. That He guided the people through the wilderness with a pillar of fire at night. 
and clouds by day, a cloud by day. Or even before that, you'll find that he communicated to his people and even to pagans through things like the ten plagues, the Pharaoh in Egypt. He spoke to his people through victories in battle, sometimes through their defeats, where they might say, God, what is it that you're doing here? Obviously, we've lost. And God would tell them what's happened. God is speaking to them. He is revealing truth to them. He spoke through things like the tabernacle and the law. Places of worship that they would go and gather around. The Ark of the Covenant. We saw that back in 1 Samuel, didn't we? 1 and 2 Samuel. Where the covenant falls, Uzzah goes out to grab it and he dies as soon as he makes contact with the Ark of the Covenant. God is speaking very clearly through that. Well, he has our attention now with things like that. He spoke through the temple, didn't he? His glory was revealed to the nation of Israel. The priests were there to teach the people the law, and they would come and bring sacrifices to him in the, in the temple, and he would speak to them. If they did it wrong, if they sinned, he would bring them to a place of repentance through the judges and things like that. Eventually, the temple is destroyed, and he communicates Israel's sin by sending them off into exile in Assyria and eventually to Babylon. He is communicating with them, revealing himself. He is speaking at various times and in various ways, and he is progressively revealing more things about himself. All of these ways that he spoke to his people was a progressive revelation of himself to his people. They come out of Egypt and into the promised land and they see him as mighty. He delivered us from slavery. He parted the Red Sea. He destroyed Pharaoh's army. He led us through the wilderness. He led us into the promised land. He scattered the armies in front of us. He is mighty. In leading them and giving them victory, they see Him as loving and as kind. He's bringing them to repentance. They begin to see Him as slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love in the Psalms. As they come to Him in worship, they are coming in thanksgiving, or they are supposed to be. And in His patience, they see Him as merciful, that He's slow to anger, and that He doesn't send them into exile immediately for their sin. He is laboring long over the people of Israel, giving them opportunity after opportunity to repent. In His punishment of them, in sending them out into exile, what is He demonstrating to them? That He is holy and just. That He cares about sin. So the point is, at many times and in many ways seen throughout the Old Testament, God has progressively revealed Himself to His people. But there is one little addition that we should make to that. He didn't just reveal Himself in these miraculous events, did He? They always were accompanied by a prophet to go with them. The Red Sea didn't just part in front of the people of Israel, but Moses, the prophet, was there as the instrument. And this is an important part to remember that God didn't merely come to each Israelite 
and whisper in their hearts, hey, stretch out your hands. I'm going to part the Red Sea. And they all just kind of stood there and parted the Red Sea. That's not what he did. It was through an individual. His normal way of communicating the norm of what he did is by calling individuals. Did he ever move in the hearts of people? Of course, yeah, he did that at times. But that's not his norm. His norm is bringing about an individual, a prophet, and he would put his words in their mouth. And that prophet would then be able to stand before the people and say, Thus saith the Lord. And the reason that that prophet was able to do that is precisely because God put his words in that prophet's mouth. The prophet would not say less than what was put in his mouth, and he dare not say more. He had to say exactly what God had put in his mouth. So then the prophet could say, thus saith the Lord, and speak authoritatively because these are God's words, not mine. I, I, I'm, I'm the mailman. I'm just the messenger. But the importance of the prophet was that he not only spoke for God, he was there to either foretell or foretell what was going to take place. Foretelling what was going to take place would be to predict the future. This is what's going to happen. You are going to go into exile, into Babylon. God is going to destroy this city. Or, he would foretell. The prophet was there to give an explanation of the current situation from God's perspective. This is what God thinks about your sin. This is what you are currently doing. Achan steals treasures as the children of Israel march into the promised land, and it is revealed Achan is the one. He's being foretold. Achan is the one that is the problem. The Scriptures are filled with God explaining through the pens of the prophets what He thinks about the past, what He thinks about the current situations, what He even thinks and knows is to happen in the future. But through all of God's revelation, there was a prophet there to perform these tasks. To take God's word, to explain them to the people. For every plague, there was Moses saying, this is what God is saying. Let my people go so they can worship me out in the wilderness. And if you don't, here is what's going to happen to you. There's a prophet there. Or with the kingship of Saul, there's Samuel saying, this is what God thinks about your disobedience. But this whole text that's in front of us, these one and a half verses, is a comparison between the way God did it and the way He's doing it now. He has spoken this way to our fathers long ago at many times and in many, and in many ways. But now... God has spoken to us by His Son. There's a significant division between the days of the fathers and the days that you and I currently live in now. 
And he categorizes these. If you look at this verse, he categorizes these as these last days. The difference between the former days and these last days is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is what makes the difference between the former days of the prophets and these last days. This is the New Testament's way of describing the era that we currently live in. And we live in the same era that the Apostle Paul lived in. And every Christian in between, or every person in between, the Apostle Paul, or however far you want to go back, and us, is all in that same era, and it's categorized as these last days, or the latter days, or the last days, or the end times. Oh, we've really stepped off in it now, haven't we? It's the era of Jesus' ministry. The era of the ministry of Jesus of Nazareth. Now, we might look at the last 2,000 years and think, well, I'm, I'm in a completely different place than the Apostle Paul was. Not according to the New Testament, you're not. These last 2,000 years are the ministry of the resurrected Jesus of Nazareth. These are the last days. And people always want to ask, well, how close to the last, last days are we really? We don't know the answer to that question. What does it mean that the ministry of the Son are the last days, these last days? At the risk of being obvious, it means this is it. This is it. This is the end. This is it. It means that there are no more eras to come before God's new heavens and new earth. These are the last days. If it weren't that way, these wouldn't be the last days. If there were more eras to come, just to be obvious, these wouldn't be the last days. These would be the second to last days, or the whatever. In the Old Testament era, God's plan for redemption was a mystery. It was unknown to people. How exactly He was going to redeem humanity or redeem His people. Now, bits and pieces of His plan is revealed through the prophets. He puts a word in their mouth. They're able to say, Thus saith the Lord. Jeremiah is able to to communicate to the people the promise of what happens to God's people after exile. Here's the new covenant that's coming. I get a glimpse of it, just bits and pieces, but I don't have the whole story. They only ever had a piece. But the very fact that these are called these last days, as the author of Hebrews says means that there is no greater revelation for God's plan of redemption than the good news of Jesus Christ. This is it! The whole thing that the Old Testament was building up towards, the whole thing that remained a mystery, now has been revealed. It's here, you can know it. This is what it is. The reason, then, that the Bible is closed... Meaning there's, we're not going to find in years to come the book of second opinions being written. Right? And you go, okay, well here's what first opinion says, well now here's what second opinion says. We're not going to find that 
The reason that the Bible is closed, it needs no more books added to it, is because, in spite of what Sarah Young might desire, the Bible contains the total plan of God's revelation for the redemption of His people. It's all revealed right here in these 66 books, beginning with Genesis, ending in Revelation. Here is the entire plan of the redemption of my people. And it's all going to happen through the Son. There is no more plan to be revealed. There is no part two. There is no thing that you should be desiring other than to see this is how God is going to redeem all of us. This, in Revelation, is what awaits us, the new heavens and new earth. This is how God is going to do it. He has revealed it all. He has stated it all through His Son. And now, everything becomes about Him. So Christ is going to return. Death is going to be vanquished. Satan and all evildoers will be eradicated. Eternal life will be granted to all those who believe. All of those things are still in our future. But how do we know? How do we know about that? Because the Son has revealed all those things. In other words, what He's saying here is that God has put all the cards on the table. Every card that you need to see, He's given you. It's there. And who is it about? The Son. But, but I want that moment where He just unzips the sky and He says, Look! See behind the curtain? See what all is waiting here? Where would your hope then be? In Christ or in that? No, your hope is squarely where it should be. All of God's cards have been placed on the table so as to focus your attention on the one that truly matters. And that is the Son. Not your redemption even. Not your glory even. Not the days of eternal life even. All of those things are a byproduct of what you gain, which is Christ. Him as King. Him as Savior of your soul. Him as Lord and Master. So if you compare the former days to these last days, how would you prefer God to have spoken to you, His people. In the former days, He spoke by prophets. In these last days, He has spoken by the Son. The difference between speaking through prophets and speaking by His Son is the difference between thus saith the Lord and come to Me all who labor.
and are heavy laden. And I will give you rest. How would you prefer he did it? The former days where someone is there as a messenger to report to you what God has told him, or by God himself saying, take my yoke upon you. Find rest for your souls. In the former days, God had someone to speak for him, but in these last days, he's spoken for himself. He stepped into our world in such a way that now everyone must decide on him. What do you do with the Son? That is the decision every single person has to make. Even the person that is the avowed atheist who would say, I don't believe they have made a decision on Christ. The decision is not final yet. But as of right now, they've made a decision. Everyone must make that decision. What do you think about him? What do you do with the Son? God has stepped into our world in a way that you must decide. It all comes down to him. He's revealed himself by whispering into the heart. He hasn't revealed himself, sorry, by whispering into the heart of one person and then you receiving that message. Instead, he has revealed himself historically in a person. He stepped into our world and he died and he rose again and you have to ask yourself, well, what do I do with that? 2,000 years ago, there was a guy who died and then three days later, he got up from the grave. What do I do with that? Do, do you live in a world where people rise from the dead? Well, you got to decide whether you live in that world or not. Do you or do you not? What do you do with the sun? Kids will frequently ask their parents, and my children are no exception to this. They'll ask us from time to time, how do we know that what we worship is right? And what, you know, Muslims or Hindus or name another religion, what they worship is wrong. How, how do we know? How do we know we're the right ones and they're, they're not the right ones? How do we know that? The answer is Jesus. That's the reason. To be honest with you, we wouldn't know otherwise. Listen, we know because God actually stepped into our world in the person of Jesus Christ and as a matter of historical fact, he died and he rose again. This happened. And this is what he told us. That's the only reason. If we only had the Old Testament, we would not be here. None of us obviously would be Christians. Very few of us, if any of us, would be Jewish. And we would probably be arguing over reincarnation or over some other narrative. Right? We would probably all be a part of that, if anything. 
But it all changed 2,000 years ago in Jerusalem. Or in Bethlehem, you might say. When God stepped into our world, lived as a man, taught us all kinds of things, which, for all we would know, might be kooky, until he rose from the dead. And that changed everything. That's the reason. That's the only reason. That's the only reason we can stand here today and claim this as true and everything else is falsehood. Is precisely because of the way God has spoken to us now through His Son. If He hadn't done that, where would you be? Lost. But in His Son, God has spoken to us with such finality that your eternity would be settled on the atoning death and resurrection of Jesus. And that message is simple. Do you want to be justified before God? That's the question. Because of the way God has spoken to us, we can now say, do you, person, because of the truth of the resurrection, do you want to be justified before God? In other words, when you stand in the courtroom of God, do you want to be declared not guilty? And if the answer to that question is yes, then there is but one way for that to happen, and that is to trust in the atoning work of Christ on your behalf. There is no other way. That is what it means that God has spoken through His Son. To reject that is not to say, I don't believe that. That's not what rejection of Christ actually means. To reject the atoning work of Christ is to say, I'm going to try it on my own. Because you can't reject something that historically happened. You can stand there all day saying, George Washington never lived, but I've got news for you. He lived. It doesn't matter whether you accept a historical fact or not. It happened. But because of the way God has spoken in Christ as a matter of historical record, when He rose from the dead, now your justification before God hinges on what you say about Him. That is what it means that God has spoken through His Son. When God spoke to us by His Son, It's His way of saying, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. See, this letter that we're reading, this sermon that we're going through and going to be going through is going to make that case. That this way that God spoke is the best way he could possibly have ever spoken. It's the only way to communicate to you you can be saved. You're going to try that either by trusting in Christ or by bringing your bull and your goat to the altar. And I'm here to tell you that because 
of the revelation of Christ because God spoke to us by His Son, by His death and His resurrection. The blood of bulls and goats will never take away your sins. Only the Son. So His message then to us is clear. Bow before the Son. Listen to His words as recorded for us in the text of Scripture. Give yourself to its study. Now don't get me wrong. I understand the desire. I've been there. I get the desire for God to just speak to you. Don't take the job. I get it. I understand the feeling that that would be comfortable. I'm also not disparaging the times where we get uneasy feelings about things and we go, I don't know, the Lord's not giving me a peace about that. I get those things too, and I'm not trying to disparage those. But the reason that God's final word to us in His Son is superior to all other ways He could speak is because it actually tells us what our lives are really about. Our lives are not about how God is waiting on your decision about the job or about whatever it might be and then determining how He's going to punish you or how He's going to feel about you as you make this decision. Well, if He makes the wrong one, then I'm going to strike Him dead with a lightning bolt. That's... When He spoke to us by His Son, we realized that's not what life is about. Our lives are about glorifying the Son. Do you understand that? Once Christ rose, He now became the object of our worship and our praise and our lives to be lived to His glory. That's the Word He has spoken to us in these last days. That's what the Bible is actually telling us. That your decisions, take the job, don't take the job, choose this school, choose that school, retire, don't retire. Your decisions are all summed up in what brings honor and glory to the Son. You understand, that's how the Bible is a manual for our life. Not because I can flip to a page in the Bible, Second Opinions 3.16, and it says, Thou shalt not retire. That's not how the Bible is a manual for your life. It's a manual for your life because it tells you that your whole life is about glorying and glorifying and honoring the Son. That He has been raised, and all who are found in Him are loved by God. All who are found in Christ are free. And if the Son has set you free, you're free indeed. You understand? The Bible is a manual for life because God spoke to us through His Son. And in the resurrection of the Son, He's now telling you, orient your entire life around what it means to glorify the Son. Orient your life your decisions, submit everything you can to Him. Give yourself to this book that is here recorded all the information you will ever need to know about how to glorify Christ in everything you think, 
in everything you do, in every way you live. That's what it means that God has spoken to us now by His Son. Everything in your life now is lived for His glory. What what would change about your decision-making process if you stopped and said, what gives the most glory in this situation to Christ? It might be retirement and into a new thing, new phase of life, maybe. Or it might be to keep working. It's probably not going to be to collect seashells on the beach. Someone famously once preached. It might be a host of things, but all of it is you submitting all of that decision-making process to Christ and saying, what brings the most honor to Him? Because He rose from the dead, and now I realize all of life is about Him. Heavenly Father, our ask, our request in the study of your word is that you reveal yourself to us in truth, that we see you for who you really are, that you give us a reverence, a desire. Seek and honor Christ. That we grow in our appreciation of Him and our desire of Him and we don't merely think of salvation as all the things that we get, but that we think of our lives as Christ. That we can say with the Apostle Paul, to live is Christ so that death for us will be gain. I pray. Give us that as we study your word, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. If you live in the Tuscaloosa area and are looking for a church, we'd love for you to visit. Our service times are Sunday mornings at 10.30 and Wednesday nights at 6.15.